Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my regular co-host, Jay Carson. Jay, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm back, Mike. I'm- yeah, well, that's, that's you know, it, we, we, have a, we have a big action-packed week. I didn't think we were going to, but uh, let's start with President Trump's pardon of former Maricopa County, Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was convicted of criminal contempt of court for flagrant disregard of a court order to stop detaining people who didn't actually commit a crime, but he thought might be illegal immigrants. Uh, like they might. They, they, might they looked suspicious. To, yeah, yeah they, they, they looked sort of brown in their skin, and so he didn't like that. But anyway, the 85-year-old Arpaio has not yet been sentenced, and he won't be obviously now, and he faced up to six months in prison. So, Jay, what do you make of this very first presidential pardon from Donald Trump? Um, well, you know, this is kind of funny because, you know, again, um, I didn't even know about it till this morning. Um, you happened to point it out to me. I mean, guess what happened uh, uh, after, after we had shut off for Friday? Um, you know, look, first of all, we'll, we'll dispense with the usual, yes, of course, within the president's power to, to issue this pardon. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, the, the, uh, to me, uh, it's the why I, I don't get, uh, if it's to send a message on immigration, I think there's better messages you could send. Um, you know, I'm, I'm also a little concerned in that, you know, what, what Arpaio was uh, convicted of, uh, you know, lots of times when, when people are pardoned, there is the idea of, uh, look, they've they've been uh, charged, convicted, have done some of their time, and have have learned their lesson. Uh, they're a better person now. They won't do it again, uh, so forth. Uh, in the there are pyro situation. This happened before he's actually even been <laughs> been uh, uh, tried. I think right or before he's been sentenced. Um, so so he's he's there's none of that. And the nature of the crime, and I say crime. I, but, but I, I'm not sure what else you could call it. It's because it, he's be sentenced for it. Is what troubles me a little bit is is that you have a law enforcement officer who was convicted of contempt of court of refusing to obey uh, uh, court orders, um, and I think that that really, you know, ought to strike at the heart of uh, or rankle a lot of law and order people who you can say, look, you know, maybe maybe I agree with Arpaio or don't agree with Arpaio. Maybe the court was right or wrong. But the the response from a foreign law enforcement officer is is not to refuse uh, to obey a court order. It's look if you're going to appeal, then you appeal or 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 whatever. Um, and that's that's a little troubling uh, that that he's issuing a pardon uh, for essentially refusing. In a lot of ways, there's there's sort of an irony here, right? With like compared to like sanctuary cities. Um, where the, you know, the president's argument and one that I, I would agree with is, look, the federal government is saying uh, we want your help in enforcing these immigration laws and local officials are saying, no, we're not going to listen to you, federal government. Uh, in this case, it, it's sort of a, a same sort of thing where you have a federal official, a, a judge saying uh, you can't do this. And you have a local official saying uh, sort of putting his middle finger in the air saying, no, I'm going to do it anyway. Um you know, if the argument is is that uh, we're a country of laws and and not of of men, um, you know, Arpaio is is really a bad a bad example. Uh, and 
you know, to, to try to get into Trump's head, I'm, I'm sure there are some who say this is, um, you know, not dog whistle because it's pretty obvious. But, you know, th- this is sort of a, uh, hey, I'm, I'm uh, for tough immigration uh, control and so forth. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's just Trump being Trump again. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think this is part of a larger pattern of, of, of Donald Trump indicating that he really doesn't care a whole lot about the larger implications of, you know, rule of law and things like that. He wants what he wants and he wants to send whatever message and put his middle finger up to the establishment, which, you know, uh, doesn't like Joe Arpaio even a little bit. And that's, that's uh, you know, the be all and end. Although, you know, some people suggested, well, maybe this is sending a message to, uh, uh, to Mike Flynn, Paul Manafort and other people saying that, hey, you know, I've you don't have to worry about serving time and so forth. If, if Bob Mueller comes, you know, uh, threatening you with something, uh, I, I will take care of that. I, I don't know. I think that might be looking yeah. a little bit too much into it, but, but, you know, we, we've talked about, as you pointed out, we've talked about this a lot before the importance of essentially abiding by the rules. And if you don't like them using the process to change those rules, but the idea of just kind of saying, well, I'm just not going to do it because I don't like that especially when you're a law enforcement officer, that is deeply troubling, but clearly it doesn't trouble the president at all. And, and look, in all likelihood, as, as far as Ohio getting sentenced, uh, he, I, I highly doubt he would have been actually sentenced to any sort of uh, prison time. Uh, it would have been in all likelihood a suspended sentence and, um, you know, don't do it again. And, you know, uh, you're on, unpro- I mean, I, I can't see that, uh, again, putting essentially an 85-year-old nonviolent offender in prison, I just don't think it would have happened. Um, so, uh, so this this whole this whole move is is largely and entirely some buck. And I really think it gets back to, and I, I don't want to get into psychoanalyzing Trump because so many people do that, and and I don't I don't really know that much more about the man than than what I see and read. But it, it seems he he tends to to divide the world into like hey, okay guys and not okay guys. Uh, and I think that that comes back with, with his judgment, with, um, uh, you know, even the, the Flynn sort of thing, with the, hey, come on, he's a good guy, cut him a break. Um, I think maybe he just looks at Arpaio the same way. Hey, he's a good guy. I'm not, I don't want him to get uh, get. And, I, and there may be that, that may be all that's there, you know? I mean, I, I think we're, we're so used to um, – you know, looking for deeper motives and reading, you know, political tea leaves and what else is going on there and what's going on below the surface. And, and I, I think with, with Trump there, there just might not be that much going on below the surface. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really good point. Hey, before we get to our next story, we want to thank our first sponsor today, SeatGeek, a great low cost, super convenient way to buy tickets for live events with SeatGeek. You can find the best seats at the best prices. It's fully guaranteed and it only takes a few taps on the app or a few clicks. If you access it through their website, SeatGeek.com, you know, I've used SeatGeek both in the app and uh, on my phone and through SeatGeek.com. And either way, really quick, easy, informative. I just pulled it up and found out, for instance, that I can get tickets to an event that I, as a Pittsburgh Steelers fan living in Cincinnati, always watch, and that's the Steelers-Bengals game this December. And and actually, the prices on SeatGeek were a lot lower than I would have guessed for, for that game. And so, you know, and plus with SeatGeek, you can get updates on whatever, if it's not, if you're not a Steelers fan, you know, that's your own problem. But anyway, 
anyway, you know, whatever sort of events, <laughs> performances you want to keep track of, you can even connect it with Spotify, your music library, Facebook, get notifications about artists you listen to or follow. But if you want to turn that off, that's not a big deal. If you're not a big notification person, I know I'm not. And when you buy a ticket, they'll even put the day and time of the event on your calendar if you want. And best of all, Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code POLITICSGUY today. That's promo code POLITICSGUY for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Okay, moving on to our next story. It was a busy Friday afternoon for Donald Trump uh, in a presidential memo that he sent out on Friday. President Trump formalized the ban on military recruitment of openly transgender people. And of course, he announced this in late July, initially on Twitter, of course. Um, the, the memo also prevents the military from providing sex reassignment surgery for transgender troops. Now, the status of current transgender troops is still a little bit up in the air because the president is allowing military leaders to determine whether or not transgender troops should be allowed to continue to serve. So uh, what do you think about this ban, Jay? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, well, we talked about this uh, before. I think we, I think we did, didn't we? I know I know it came up. I'm not sure to the, the extent we discussed it. And, and I think we were both of it. At least I, I've always been the, of the opinion, look, the military is not a, uh, a big sort of social justice experiment. Uh, it exists to fight and, and kill other people. Um, so to me that, we, you know, you look at the military, that is their, their primary mission. Um, that said, uh, the, the effectiveness of, of the military ought to be left up to the military. Um, and, and it's a little weird of, of Trump, who is, has shown this sort of preference, uh, deference, uh, you know, fanboy sort of thing for generals, uh, that, that he wouldn't go through what is sort of the typical, the typical process, uh, which is you would have a Pentagon study and evaluate and, and you know, what is the, the presence of transgender troops? I mean, first of all, how big a deal is this? Um, how does this affect our, our military readiness capabilities? Uh, 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 you know, what, what I'm, what's yeah. the word I'm looking for? Group yeah. cohesion. Uh, or, no, in uh, fact, in fact, you know, that, that's a really, it's really uh, important point because just to give folks a little bit of history, uh, back in uh, summer 2016, President Obama uh, allowed transgender uh, troops to serve openly and, and receive that uh, sex reassignment surgery and so forth. But he also ordered the Pentagon to determine uh, you know, what sort of policy there should be kind of going forward. And he gave them a year to do that. Now, obviously that would be lead into the next presidency, which he thought at the time would be, you know, a Hillary Clinton presidency. Then Jim Mattis comes in as defense secretary and he actually delayed the entry of transgender, of openly transgender troops until uh, January of 2018 for just those reasons you cited, Jay, the need to evaluate the impact of this on readiness and cohesion. And so essentially what President Trump is doing is he's short-circuiting this process by just saying um, no. And, and I think you make a good point saying that if you're, if you have a legitimate concern over readiness and cohesion, you at least you let this study play out and wait to see what the, what the results of this study are. So to me, pretty clearly, this is just about Donald Trump sending another message to his base. Another possibility here is there's word that there was a lot of lobbying from more socially conservative members of Congress who 
were suggesting that maybe they would be a little difficult on the spending bill, and that would also include money for President Trump's beloved border wall, unless he gave in on this issue. And so maybe he felt like, ah, you know, this is, uh, well, I'm getting some pressure on this, and I might as well go along with this thing that I don't really care about a whole lot. So maybe I can make my wall a little more of a likelihood of happening. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess, you know, I, See, I mean, the, the vibe that I get through, through most of the conservative community who I talk to and, and read their stuff and so forth, uh, which, which again, is, is not necessarily the Trump base, uh, is that this is, this is not a, a big deal. Um, I, mean, I mean, in terms of this was not a big policy outcome of, of uh, you know, there are conservatives out there saying, man, I can't wait till we get Trump in there and then we can uh, de-transgender the military. Uh, you know, it's, this is one of those, uh, I mean, you know, if you look well, I think at to religious know, conservatives. There, there's much bigger priority yeah. in Obamacare tax cuts and so forth. And again, I suppose this is one that is easier to do because you don't go through Congress, but I, I, I didn't see, I didn't see transgenders, people in the military as being any on anyone's radar in, in the conservative movement is this is something, Oh, we've, this is a big problem we've got to address right now. Um, and that's, that's again, something that sort of flummoxes me a little bit is that, uh, um, I, I just don't get, get why he's doing this. Well, I I would think that's probably because you hang out with what I would consider the more reasonable conservatives and listen to their stuff. Whereas I think there's a whole, uh, segment and it's certainly not a majority segment, but it's a loud minority segment of what's broadly called the conservative movement uh, that are far more interested in these sort of religious and social issues and, and have been for a long time, extraordinarily uncomfortable, what they would call the advancement of the LGBT, no, they would never call it LGBTQ. Sure, well, no, and I I get that, but even even amongst those folks that that I know and talked, I mean, it seems their their bigger concern would would not have been something like this. It would be more of uh, you know, say, religious protective act type things, you know, uh, protecting your your uh, cake bakers and so forth. Uh, that that would be on, higher up on the priority, um, but but. You know, regardless, this seems a, a Trumpian thing to do, and uh, uh, I, I don't get it myself. Uh, I would defer to the military leaders to determine, um, you know, what's what's best for for the military. Uh, and also, that said, I think there's there's something to be said, uh, even that the the liberals advance the argument, and I think there's it's a good one. Look, if someone is willing to sign up to fight and serve and and perhaps die for their country. Uh, we ought to, we ought to honor that and, uh, not dissuade people from doing that. Yeah, exactly what Senator McCain said. And I agree with him entirely on that. All right. Before we get to our next story, we want to thank our second sponsor for today, Casper. You know, everyone sleeps, but way too many people sleep on substandard mattresses. And and I totally get that. I used to be one of those people. The thought of going out to some mattress store and dealing with a salesperson, those marked up prices, uh, it kept me in a bad mattress for way too long. But then I got smart and I got a Casper mattress. It was a quick, downright pleasant process. And now I have the best mattress I've ever slept on. Also, I've noticed that since my wife and I got our Casper, our dog, our dog Gus, who used to sleep on the floor all night, he's suddenly on the bed more often than not. And I mean, (laughs) I know it's weird. Gus is serious about his comfort. And it's pretty clear to me that he's given Casper his canine seal of approval. So there you go. Now, 
Now, yeah, I know, Jay, and you've got some big Casper fans in your family too, I right? I do. My, my, my mom and my sister both have Casper mattresses, and they both swear by them. Uh, and uh, uh, again, my, my mom was someone who was uh, sort of skeptical uh, in that, hey, this just sort of you know comes in the mail. <laughs> I mean, and how, how does this work? Uh, but she's a big fan now, and uh, the convenience uh, is is great, and especially for uh, you know older folks who making that extra trip out to the mattress store and going through that whole rigmarole, and there's just the weird process of of having people watch you lay down on mattresses. Um, uh, this this saves you all that, and uh, it's it's a, a great product at a a more economical price. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I really love about it is that it's got this combination of supportive memory foams. You get uh, just the right amount of sink, just the right amount of bounce, and also it's designed to be breathable, which means it sleeps cool. And I generate a lot of heat when I sleep, and so does Gus because you know he's covered in fur and so forth. And so that's particularly important to me. And so you can trust us about how great. Casper is, but maybe you're a skeptical person. Uh, I completely get. I am too. So it's Jay. You're skeptical, Jay, right? I mean, I'm very skeptical. You'd say I don't know what these guys. I don't. Know if we can trust these guys. <laughs> but but aside from our recommendations uh, and Gus's, Casper has over twenty thousand reviews with an average of four point eight stars, plus free shipping to the U.S. and Canada, and a one hundred night risk free deal. So if you don't love it, they will pick it up and they will refund you everything. That's like literally no risk here. Plus, it's designed, developed, and assembled in the USA. And best of all, Politics Guys listeners get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash TPG and using promo code TPG. That's casper.com slash TPG, promo code TPG. Terms and conditions apply. All right, well, moving on, Jay, this is, it's been a, a, a kind of an interesting week because we're leading with not one, not two, but three policy relevant stories. I can't recall the last time we've done that, which is kind of an inflation, a ref, refreshing change, I think. Uh, this week, President Trump announced a new strategy for the longest conflict in American history, and that, of course, is the 16-year-old war in Afghanistan. Now, the president who campaigned on pulling out of Afghanistan was eventually convinced by his generals that doing so would make the terrorism problem worse. And Trump made it clear that there would be additional troops put into the country, but he didn't give a number, though it's generally thought that the number is going to be around 4,000 or so. And that's a significant increase to the approximately 8,400 American troops currently in country, but it's far short of the peak troop level of around 100,000 back in 2011. Now, President Trump rightly, in my view, criticized the artificial military drawdown timetables that the Obama administration established. And he has said that under him, troop levels would be determined by conditions on the ground. But he also said there wouldn't be a blank check. Um, and also, as part of the new strategy, the president will be giving field commanders greater authority, uh, and he intends to put greater pressure on Pakistan, which has long offered uh, safe haven to Taliban fighters, and which uh, a country that we give uh, a lot of aid to, close to a billion dollars, I believe, in 2016. So, Jay, what do you think about the new Afghanistan plan? Well, as our, our Trump stories uh, at this point, I would say he's he's one for three. Um this this seems to me to be uh, something sensible that, again, as you point out, this was done in consultation with the military. And as he pointed out in his press conference, sort of this is against his instincts. <laughs> so maybe maybe that's the way to go. Um, sort of the old, you know, George Costanza do the opposite. Um, 
so I look, I, if this is Afghanistan is a difficult problem. Uh, the Middle East is a horrendously difficult problem. Uh, when we've talked about this on other shows, I've, I've long been of the opinion uh, that it, it's, it's not ideal that we have troops stationed around the world like this or that the world's policemen or that we're trying to prop up failed states. Uh, but somebody's got to do it. And, and, uh, because, you know, what happens in the vacuum is you get blossoming of, uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda and those types of, of, uh, organizations that have a safe haven. So I, I, I am wholly in agreement with this. And I also, I'm, I think conservatives can be happy about the idea of not setting these artificial drawdown dates, which, uh, indicate to those who would uh, who would do us harm and quite frankly do the other people of Afghanistan harm uh, that all they need to do is sit back and, and wait us out. So uh, um, I think this was this was a good move uh, by by the Trump administration, even if, if not by Trump himself. Um, but uh, listening to his his uh, military advisors. Yeah. You know, uh, President Trump said uh, this is a, a, a such a non-Trumpian quote that I want to I want to highlight it. He said, my original instinct was to pull out. And historically, I like following my instincts uh, in an incredibly right. understated way. But then he the said, opposite. Yeah. yeah. But then he said, <laughs> but all my life, I've heard that decisions are much different when you sit behind the desk in the Oval Office. That's, I mean, essentially what we have here is President Trump saying, you know, I, I, I reconsidered based on more evidence and the urging of people who are more deeply involved in this. And that is so unlike him, as you pointed out. And it seems to me that, that and then the this, next day, no transgenders, you know, yeah, you know, he can't <laughs> help himself. Clear. Yeah. But, <laughs> but no transgender folks serving there, but, but yeah, you know, it's, it's so, I, I don't know. I, one thing I do want to point out, I agree with this as a general policy, and I almost feel like it's not a Trump policy. It's a, it's a Trump's general's policy kind of thing. Um, but like you said, when he listens to people other than himself, he tends, and other than, say, Steve Bannon and, you know, and, and, and other folks like that, he tends to be better off. But, you know, it's interesting because he said we aren't nation in the same the statement when he announced, he said we aren't nation building. We're killing terrorists. But the, the thing is, is. That's exactly the sort of policy that doesn't work. I mean, Afghanistan is incredibly poor. It's incredibly corrupt. And it's historically been ruled by local warlords and not this sort of central government structure that was just imposed in, you know, post uh, post 9-11 when we went in there and knocked out the knocked out the uh, Taliban. So, I mean, if if we don't if there's not a structure in place to, uh, to to provide some sort of long-term stability, this is going to keep on going. And you can't just you can't just kill your way to solving this problem. It just doesn't work that way, you know. Uh, and I mean, I just, I just I mean, it just doesn't. I, I, I mean, I, I would I would argue that you know, look, regardless, uh, Afghanistan is and has been a failed state for you know thirty some years. Um, but but the first step has to be eliminating as many of these the the belligerents as as you can uh, before you can even take steps to to you know nation building. Yeah. Okay. I see, Jay. And, you know, I think I think that's a, that's a fair point. I think the two things have to sort of work in concert. You know, and and I would say that pretty clearly that President Trump was a lot more comfortable with the military solutions and the diplomatic solutions. He's proposed all kinds of cuts to the State Department. He doesn't really like diplomacy. I don't think he really understands diplomacy uh, uh, very much. And, you know, the, the idea of putting more pressure on Pakistan, I get that. But, of course, 
you know, there's a reason why we give Pakistan so much aid. And you know, in general, when we give countries aid, it's not because we're just feeling generous. It's because we're trying to promote uh, stability in these governments and save lives. And so it's not like, uh, you know, taking away that aid, cutting that aid doesn't have negative consequences. The last thing we want is a less stable Pakistan, for instance, you know. Sure. So so these are a lot of hard decisions. I mean, this is certainly, I would say, I would I would say a move in the right direction. And I just kind of hope that as we move along in Afghanistan, that uh, we give also some consideration to the diplomatic side of this that has to go along with uh, the military side. Well, you know, and I'm, I'm going to be a, a pragmatist and, and maybe sort of a, a pessimist on this at the same time and say this this may just be, to some extent, a, a, a new normal, that we just have a permanent force uh, in places like, like Pakistan. Uh, for the reasons you, you've mentioned, I mean, nation building is, is difficult. And, and to some extent, I mean, you know, maybe someone should look as, as nation building, and I'll put that in sort of air quotes, is that even... A, a, a possibility is that even a real thing um uh, because when you have a place like afghanistan that that doesn't have any sort of institutions that have really ever existed uh how do you how do you plant those and and, and again let's if you look at the the american revolution uh and and the sort of how we built our, our nation uh we we're building on hundreds of years uh of of english law that you know, the recognition, recognizing uh, uh, limited government and rights of the people and, and all this sort of thing. And it, this may be something that just it takes hundreds of years. Uh, and and Pakistan is sort of starting at ground zero. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it, it is it's quite a challenge when we when we think about what victory would look like, you know, when we, when we think about traditionally victory in war, we think about, I, think, I said, I'm sorry, I said Pakistan. I mean, yeah, yeah. But, but I think you would agree that when we think about victory, we think about vanquishing the enemy in some sort of permanent way, you know, the, the kind of world war two sort of, well, the, the Nazis are gone and that sort of thing. Exactly. And, and when you were talking about, yeah, European governments, again, who have that sort of, exactly that sort of history, the idea is we just take out the bad guys and the good guys will come back into power and, and things will be okay. Yeah. And in this instance, that's not really, I don't think a viable possibility. Victory more looks like kind of a sort of a stalemate sort of thing where the Taliban is still a force, but on balance, the central government uh, in Kabul kind of controls more of the more of the country than not, essentially. I mean, and that's well, I think it, about I would say it's similar to, you know, you might call it a type of, of containment like we did in the Cold War where, look, there's going to be these areas that are, are going to be sort of ungovernable. Uh, but as long as we have the force and the power in there to prevent it from spreading, uh, to prevent it from from metastasizing into either ISIS type groups that control, you know, pieces of territory uh, or just the spreading of, of jihad into uh, into the West. You know, that's that's what your goal is, is that that sort of containment. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that's a really good point. You know, on the domestic front, there's a new development on a story we've talked about a lot in the past, Jay, and that's voter ID laws. Yeah. This week, U.S. District Judge Nelva Gonzalez-Ramos issued a permanent injunction against Texas's voter ID law, which is generally regarded as one of the most restrictive in the country. Uh, Gonzalez-Ramos ruled that the law, which was a revision of a previous law, 
that was tossed by the courts, didn't fully deal with the issues raised by the initial law and was, in her words, enacted with discriminatory intent, knowingly placing additional burdens on a disproportionate number of Hispanic and African-American voters. Now, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton called the ruling outrageous, and I'm sure the Trump Justice Department agrees, seeing as how it's been strongly supportive of restrictive voter ID laws. So, Jay, do you think that Judge Gonzalez Ramos made the right call here? Um, yeah, yeah, probably not. I mean, I think this was something to go up on appeal and uh, come back. Um, so, no, I, I, I disagree. I, I, again, I've been in uh, on on the record lots of times that that states have the rights to safeguard their voting process, and uh, to me, the the idea of the um, I, you know, again, there's no real disenfranchisement by requiring an ID. Um, are there are there better ways uh, to do it? Is there a way that could have, could you know could be done and make it easier to to get past constitutional muster? Sure, um, but uh, no, I, I I think it's this is a valid exercise of uh, of the state's ability to to govern the the voting process and. Um, you know, I expect the the Fifth Circuit, uh, assuming it'll it'll be appealed, and I, I assume it will. Um, I think the Fifth Circuit might uh, might send it back to uh, uh, Judge Ramos and say, "Try again." Well, you know, I I understand. We, you obviously you've made this point uh, a number of times in the past, and I guess my my main objection to it is if this were in fact a legitimate, honest attempt to uh, to focus on vote fraud. They wouldn't fly in the face of all of what we know about vote fraud. Let me let me give you an example of that. Uh, there have been a lot of studies on this. One that get that that's I think one of the better studies on this. One of the most comprehensive. Uh, Loyola Loyola Law School professor Justin Levitt looked at 14 years of voting. It's 2000 through 2014, and uh, he found. 31 possible, not absolutely certain, but possible incidents of in-person voter fraud. And the in-person voter fraud is the specific type of voter fraud that these laws are designed to address. Uh, And now that's out of around 1 billion votes cast during this period. So, I mean, there are other types of fraud dealing with things like registering to vote in more than one place, absentee voting fraud and vote buying. And while these, by all accounts, by all studies, are almost vanishingly small, they're far more common, according to pretty much anyone who studies vote fraud and elections. And so, number one, if vote fraud were really the concern, that would be the focus, but it isn't in any of these states. And so, you know, another thing, I think, is that if the concern were really about clean elections, so the solutions would be tailored to that most those most common types of fraud. And, and even if let's even if the Republican officials would say, well, you know, we, we need to worry about the nearly non-existent impersonation at the polls. They I think they would if they wanted to make an honest effort, they would combine tighter ID requirements with a push to help people get more IDs, more legitimate. No, IDs. And, I, I, and I agree with you on that. To me, that's that's the, the big the biggest uh, flaw is is that um, Texas does not provide free, you know, with with this uh, program. And I know I, I live in a state that has its voter ID laws. Um, now, again, we're under a little different different uh, uh, rubric sort of supervision, just because this is Ohio and and that's Texas. Uh, but no, the if you want an ID, uh, the government will provide you with one. Um, 
so that you know there is no no real you know excuse i guess for, for not being able to identify yourself yeah i mean and you would think like in texas's case for instance that they made the decision to not allow use at the polls of the ids that the state itself issues to texas state employees and you know that's one of the things that the judge that the judge cited and so i don't you know i certainly don't take issue with any reasonable efforts to make elections more, you know, less fraudulent, for instance, even though, you know, I think it's, it's a, essentially these are solutions in search of a problem for the most part, but I understand your, you, you know, your arguments. And if we can do something to, right. To if clean, we can, if we can do something to make it better, why not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think there are decent, reasonable people like you who that's the concern. But I also think that there are a lot more people who are saying, hey, we can use this as a cover to gain partisan advantage. And, and I know I would assume that if you were the sort of person who were who were putting together one of these uh, one of these laws, you would say, let's combine it with a thing to make getting IDs less of a hassle for these groups. And so that way we can legitimately say hey, we're cleaning up the system and we're trying to actually increase the number of people who can legitimately vote. And that would be fine for you. But the problem is, is there are too many people people who that's not their real goal. What they're doing is they're trying to use the process for, you know, partisan, partisan advantage and, and make this sort of, this sort of hypocritical argument, unfortunately. No, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't take it as far as you do, but I think, I think we're, we're actually getting closer on this issue. You and I, um, that's always encouraging or maybe you're, no, you're kind of conceding the, the idea of a state, you know, issued ID and then a voter ID. Um, I don't know. It's to me that I'm always troubled when uh, courts strike at the motives behind statutes rather than what the statutes say. Um, so uh, to, to me, you know, it, it ought to be on, on its on its face. Now, again, you make some some good points of, of listen, why don't they include uh, state issued IDs uh, as, as acceptable forms? Um, yeah, I think there could probably be some some reasons for that uh, that I'm not going to dig into. but. Um, you know, regardless, that that would be an easier way to get this uh, through the courts and establish some uh, some, uh, uh, you know, serve serve the ends that they're trying to reach. The other piece is it's it's a little weird when you consider this is Texas. Um, and is is there a really statewide issue of of uh, is Texas some, some suddenly going to flip uh, from a red state to a blue state? uh that that you know these measures would be needed and i would say that's that's pretty doubtful but uh at least in the um, shorter they've the they've they've uh, elected democrats before so yeah yeah so uh, i i think demographically obviously longer longer that's a whole nother story but demographically there are there's reasons for some for for texas to to worry but that's uh not any time in the near term future for sure so all right uh well you know it's time actually for what we're reading, where we step back from the crazy pace in the news cycle and talk about, you know, the more in-depth, thoughtful things that we're reading, listening to, or watching, that sort of thing. So I've got something this week from an unusual source, Jay. Uh, Vice, uh, the online, no, they have, they do a news thing on TV, but uh, yeah, I, I check out Vice on a, you know, semi-regular basis. There's an article in Vice this week called don't look now, but America's tax system may collapse soon. It's as Grover Norquist cheers, I'm sure, from wherever. But um, the, the, the article is about uh, IRS funding. And it points out that since Republicans, uh, well, since 2010, when the Republicans basically got in charge in the House, uh, Congress has cut the IRS budget really 
pretty considerably. The agency's lost around 13,000 employees. That's around 14% of the entire workforce. And now the reason why this is a big deal is, according to the Treasury Department, every additional dollar spent on IRS enforcement ends up yielding $6 or more in additional revenue from collecting legally owed taxes, basically. Uh, IRS audits are way down. They've been cut by more than a third since 2010. Uh, and so we have, this huge, we have this huge problem of people who are able to skirt the system because it's, it's sort of like, it, it's like saying, well, we have, you know, like cutting the, trying to save money by cutting the number of cops on the street or something like that, where it just, it makes no sense. This is a money gainer, especially if you're a law and order type person. I mean, we talked about this earlier in the show. You know, if you believe the tax system is unjust, that's fine. Change the tax system. But the idea of cutting way down on enforcement of the laws we have in place, that just, that just to me is insane, especially when it can actually yield more money that's legally owed without actually, you know, raising taxes on anyone. And, and the Trump administration's 2018 budget proposal actually cut the IRS budget even more by almost $240 million. So uh, I guess the, the Trump administration is tough on crime as long as it's, you know, drug, con drug crimes committed by brown and black people. But if it's, you know, tax crimes committed by, you know, old, rich, white people, well, that's okay. So anyway, oh boy. well, you know, I, I thought it was a really interesting article. It's something that, you know, people may not think about enough, but uh, I am all in favor of actually increasing funding to the IRS, especially the enforcement division, at least. And certainly the funding could be arranged so that that would be the focus of that increased funding. I think it would be good for the bottom line of the country. It would be good for respect for law. And I think it would just be a good move all around. But uh, obviously that's not something that the Trump administration or the Republican Congress wants to do. So wow. there you go. All right. Well, I'll just, I'll just let you go with that. Okay. Okay. Do you have anything for us this week, Jay? I, I do. And I, I'm looking, um, here we go. I, I was trying to find the, uh, uh, the links of the author is actually, this is sort of, this is sort of a, a negative example. Uh, this is something I read, uh, that, uh, that struck me as, oh my goodness, this is, this is horribly stupid. Um, and it's, it's the, uh, from the Atlantic. Uh, and it was published and I'm trying to get the author, um, uh, but it was by a law professor, uh, that, that sort of argues that last week's eclipse was, uh, racist or the eclipse proves that America is racist or that not enough black people live within the, uh, you know, the path of the eclipse and therefore racism, uh, or, or something like that. Weird. And it goes on for about 4,500 words. And, and it struck me as, is just something that is, you know, horribly ridiculous. I, I know in some ways I want to tell people like, Hey, you should really go, uh, go read this. Uh, the other part of me says no, but again, it's maybe sort of a, a cautionary tale. The gist of it is that, you know, the, um, the path of the, uh, um, the eclipse, uh, did, uh, uh, it was written by, uh, Alice Ristoff of Brooklyn law school. Uh, and I think it came out, uh, it was well, probably Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the, uh, the idea that the, the places where the path of the total eclipse passed over were these rather sparsely populated counties and, you know, filled with Trump supporters. Uh, and it sort of 
somehow uh, demonstrated the racism or the need to overturn um, Citizens United. Or again, the whole thing is is just so completely completely murky. Um, but the biggest point I take away, and and I and I will I will say this: uh, I'm going to take a shot at some of the conservative media that sort of you know brought this to the the forefront. Uh, and sort of labeled it sort of simplistically, hey, the you know left says the eclipse is racist. Um, uh, you know, there, there it, there's there's more to it than that. Although there were some some wonderfully hilarious, uh, you know, it's like you you couldn't make this up type thing about how well Ferguson, Missouri is is uh, you know mostly black, but just the total uh, totality of the eclipse passed like 40 miles uh, north of it. Um, so there, although there are these little acknowledgements that the moon doesn't really care where its shadow falls and so forth, but, um, uh, a conservative friend of mine, um, uh, pointed out that what, what struck him most was there was this, this really incredible, magnificent event, uh, that took place that, uh, in many ways, you know, could have been, it's sort of a unifying type, type, uh, thing. And whether, whether you look at it from a, 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 you know, religious sort of, this is, you know, the glory of, of God's handiwork, uh, or a totally secular yay science, uh, type view. This is something that is really cool and sort of puts us in our place, uh, in the universe and, uh, ought to be sort of a, a unifying and humbling sort of thing. Uh, but yet the response by, by the hard left is, uh, to look up the at the eclipse and say, uh, uh, well, look, this, you know, how does this uh, show racism? Um, and uh, to me, that's that was sort of sort of uh, poignant. So, I mean, I guess my my point isn't even so much about the article; it's more about the eclipse. And uh, Peggy Noonan had a, another uh, article in the Wall Street Journal, sort of the opposite of this, almost. Uh, again, uh, to to my argument, more about look these these sort of big events kind of remind us that. Uh, we're all just very tiny people in a very big universe. Um, and, and whatever we say, do or think, uh, <laughs> isn't going to, isn't going to change, you know, the, the eclipse or where it falls. And, uh, that ought to put us, uh, give us a bigger, better perspective. Yeah. I think there's, there's something to that, you know, and, and I haven't read the article yet. I I'm, I'm going to, but it strikes me as this is a great illustration of so much of what's wrong with the media in general. Uh, number one, the fact that, uh, in it, in the desperate desire to get clicks, uh, someone, uh, you know, a, a August, uh, body like the Atlantic with a long and proud history needing to fill space and so forth would decide to publish something like this, which sounds extraordinary clickbaity. And then on the other side, of course, then the conservative media would, would seize on this. The right, and the, so, right, the right sort of fell for yeah. it by, yes, but, by but, saying, aha, look, the Atlantic says the eclipse is yeah. racist. But, but this is, um, this is so much of but, our discourse. Yeah. And, and I think so much of it is because we, you know, we, we, want new and interesting things to be outraged about and so forth. You know, and this is, this is something that is really, I think a lot of younger listeners might not appreciate how unique this is to our modern political discourse. Uh, this is kind of a, a newer sort of thing. And it certainly, you can, you know, this happens both on the left and the right, certainly. And it's just, it's one of those things that just makes me just, wish for sometimes, I, hey, the internet's a great thing, you know, but there are, there are days, there are sometimes entire weeks when I say, geez, I just, I just wish for those simpler times back in the eighties and the nineties when, you know, this, 
the, the news cycle was a different thing. And, and you had and, used to, used to have to be like, you can only get outraged like once or twice. You a know, day. it was, you know it I mean? was, was kind of nice. Like the, yeah. Exactly. The morning newspaper. Maybe you could get uh, outraged by that. And then maybe there was something on the, yeah. the nightly news to be outraged about. But, but then um, again, what, what I trade this, that for, it is it's sort of moment by moment. Yeah, exactly. But then again, what I trade that for, you know, not having Spotify or something like that. Jeez, I don't know. But, uh, but anyway, I think an interesting article. We will of course have links to that on, on this site, you know, we actually had, because Donald Trump was so active late in the week, we actually have a number of other stories that we really wanted to get to. And what we're going to do this week is instead of doing a mega show today, which is going to probably strain the listening abilities of anyone, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of these additional stories on our Wednesday show. And just as a little bit of a preview, we're going to talk about uh, Donald Trump's battle with Republican senators uh, and the media. That's not a new thing. Uh, We're also going to bring up the largest ever national anthem protest, which was held by uh, Jay's own Cleveland Browns, not that he has an ownership stake or anything, but hometown team. And also what we can take away from Donald Trump looking into the eclipse. Uh, That and maybe a little bit more you have to look forward to on our Wednesday show. All right. Um, so that does it though for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. We really do hope you like what you heard and you will check out today's sponsors. SeatGeek, where Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code POLITICSGUY today. And Casper, where Politics Guys listeners get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash TPG and using promo code TPG. You know, listener support is a huge help to us, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, it would be great if you could share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes really does help. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just want to get in touch with us to say some random thing, you can mail us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. The show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.